0: Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. I'm your host, Hallie Teko. There is a gap in America's knowledge about women's health. This is no surprise because it wasn't until 1993 that Congress wrote an NIH inclusion policy into federal law that encouraged women and minorities as subjects in clinical research. Much of what is considered health standards are largely skewed towards men because of the years when women went understudied. Even today, there remains gender inequality in healthcare as we face wide gaps in research and treatment ability for areas unique to women. By elevating the importance of women's health, we can deliver better, more inclusive data and insights, more targeted, accessible solutions, and enable better care for women worldwide. Not only that, but we can shine a light on the importance of funding and uplifting companies that center around changing the business of our bodies. In celebration of Women's Health Month, I joined Female Founder Collective for a panel discussion on solving women's health efficiencies. I'm joined by Agya Mathur of Avia, Dr. Sophia Yen of Pandia Health, and Allison Wyatt of Female Founder Collective. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Hi, everyone. Super
1: excited about this panel today. We have some extraordinary women solving some massive problems um, within the women's healthcare space. Again, I'm Allie Wyatt. I am the co-founder and CEO of Female Founder Collective. We have the 10th house, which is our private membership community. We invite in cohorts four times a year in order to find resources, connections, and founders that are in similar stages to vent with them, as well as use them um, in your journey to help you sort of be the ways of the the founder journey and see around corners and over hurdles. I am very excited, though, about this conversation today and was just fangirling over these ladies because there remains, obviously, a huge gender inequality gap in healthcare as we face gaps in research and treatment ability for areas that are unique to women. And by elevating the importance of this, we can deliver better, more inclusive data, insights, targeted, accessible solutions, and enable better care for women worldwide. So in celebration of FFC is Women's Healthcare Month, um, we are joined by Halle Teco who I'm gonna go through Her bio, um, because she's an extraordinary entrepreneur, angel investor, podcast host, and she's passionate about fixing our healthcare system. She is the founder of Natalist, which was acquired by Everly Health in October 2021. And previously, Hallie founded and ran Rock Health and also is an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, teaching the first MBA-level course on digital health investing. She has served as a board member to the International African American or African American Museum since 2018, and as an advisor to the Harvard Medical School Department of Biomedical Informatics since 2014. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds incredibly impressive. Um, and I have actually coined her on this call as the fairy godmother of the women's healthcare system. So. That is what she I like is. The um, emoji.
0: I'm gonna start using that.
1: <laughs> and Agia Mather has an extraordinary career as well, but she started a volunteer service to fill a community need in high school and founding a small business to provide affordable transportation to her undergraduate classmates, to now leading Avia, Avia,
2: Avia,
1: Avia, Avia, to improve the health and wellness of people with uteruses. Agia Mather is consistently bridging gaps and solving inefficiencies. Through personal and professional experiences, she found her passion at the intersection of healthcare, innovation, and analytics-driven insights. During her consulting career, she worked with various clients to improve patient experience. However, she found she needed to be closer to the end user to have the kind of impact she knew she could have. And certainly, last but not least, we have Dr. Yen in... In 2016, she founded Pandia Health, the only doctor-led, women-founded, women-led birth control delivery company that is building the online health brand Women Trust. The brand improves women's lives by providing a one-stop solution for prescription birth control and acne treatment. By providing online doctor's visits for prescriptions and automating medication delivery, Pandia Health empowers women with convenient, confidential, and reliable access to expert women's health care. The company was named to Inc.'s best in business, health services, and is co-founder and CEO, Dr. Sophia Yen, MD, MPH, was named as one of Inc.'s most dynamic women entrepreneurs. So in other words, we have quite the lineup today of people who are very much experts in their fields. I'm going to go ahead and kick it off with a question for Dr. Yen, because I wanted to address the elephant in the room, and that's that women's bodies- and this was a little-known stat that I actually learned from the founder of TIA Health, have been virtually ignored for centuries. And it wasn't until 1993 that Congress wrote a National Institute of Health Inclusion Policy into federal law that encouraged women and minorities as subjects in clinical research. It's completely insane. So why do you think it took so long to put this into policy, and how do you think it held back the healthcare system previous to that?
3: So, um, first of all, I want to explain from the researcher scientist point of view probably why this was done that it was that women and minorities weren't included. Um, one is cost. In order yeah. to get minorities included, you have to have enough of them so that if you find a result that it's significant. And so, if you want to include minorities, then you have to add extra money to include minorities. And the women part is just from a scientific point of view and liability point of view. If you're trying a new drug and the patient gets pregnant, then you don't know the fetal effects. And then if the woman is on her birth control, you don't know the hormonal effects. Is she menopausal? That's another effect. Um, Is she cycling up and down? But I think it was mainly liability. If anybody gets pregnant while you're trying a new drug, you're gonna get sued. And you're trying to do a new drug, you don't have time or the money to get sued. So I think that was probably it. And the reason why finally in 1993, this happened was, I think, one, we had enough women in Congress to push for this. So we need to elect more women officials. But two, we had more women in science saying, hello, we are 50% of the population. We give birth to all of the existence on this planet. We deserve to be, we are not just little men. And that has been similar with pediatrics. There is a lot of drugs that have never been tested technically in pediatrics. We just take the adult dose and like do it milligram per kilogram and throw it at children. So um, it's absolutely, I think, a time of awareness that not everyone is a variant of what we were all taught in medical school. And I went to medical school in 93, uh, 70 kilo white male is the basis of 95% of medicine. And Thank you, 1993. Um, Hopefully more women have been in more research, but we still, I think, deserve equal funding. And I don't think we see at least equal funding for the same diseases that affect women. Endometriosis, fibroids, menopause is the wild, wild west. And um, realizing again that women are not men. We have estrogen, we lose estrogen, and how does that affect our bones, our brains, our hearts, et cetera? Very different from someone who doesn't lose estrogen at around 50 years old.
1: And going sort of deeper into this topic about education too around women's health, Hallie, I want to turn this to you. You talk about how women's health is actually an elective in many med schools, and oftentimes we believe our doctors are gaslighting us and don't fully understand us, but is this partially due to how they are educated in the the medical education
0: system? Yeah, well, I think just to preface the problem, one in five women report having felt a healthcare provider has ignored or dismissed their symptoms, and 45% of women um, said they've been labeled as chronic complainers. And so you can imagine a lot of women aren't even sharing their full medical history or the symptoms that they're facing due to fear of being judged by a physician. And I don't think that all providers gaslight, certainly, um, you know, there are amazing providers out there, but I don't think that our system is set up to really help providers meet their full potential in working with female patients. Appointment times are extremely short. I just had my annual, you know, maybe I had eight minutes with my doctor. I had um, yeah. maybe ten minutes with the nurse before that. And I probably got more value out of that time with the nurse or the PA than with my physician. Providers are burnt out, um, especially mm-hmm. female providers. They're absolutely burnt out. And most folks in the system just don't have the capacity to change things. We have built our system on a fee-for-service model, and that has led to, for someone who's young and otherwise looks healthy, kind of in and out, like check the box and move on. And so I think because of that, you know, women feel like they're not being heard. And I think the response is these amazing companies that we're starting to see, like Pandia Health, like Avia, like Tia, that are women who've been through this, who want to solve the problem and actually give women the sort of respect time and attention that we so desire.
1: And I'm going to now flip it over to you, Agia. What have been the most major discoveries or advances in healthcare since including women in these studies that
2: that you've seen? Yeah, I mean... Many, um, and I hope that this is just the first inning, uh, not to use a sports analogy when talking about women's health, but I hope that this is just, we're just at the starting line, if you will, um, where, you know, one of the things that I actually say often also, and I heard uh, Dr. yen say is like, women are not just little men. That is just something that I can't stress enough to anybody where we were excluded from these, from these studies because of our pesky hormones that was literally written in a paper once and what does that mean for us now going forward now that we have have some have been included now in some studies and there's still so much to go seeing that difference has really unraveled a whole slew of things. So starting with this health women's health specific concerns. So that's something that I like to make really clear is that women's health is not just making babies, preventing babies. Like that is not all it is while our ovaries, our uteruses and our hormones are a big part of it. And there's breast cancer screening, different things like that. Uh, Reproductive health, menopause, as we talked about maternal health, those are very specific pieces that have come out. But since I, we will talk a bit more about that. I'm going to skip Mm -hmm. through that. Another part that's actually really near and dear to my heart is cardiovascular disease. Um, This Mm -hmm. was something, again, really predominantly focused on men. There's one of my dear friends is building a company in actually women's cardiovascular disease to see, to show how the symptoms are different, to show how the risk factors are different, to hopefully then lead to diagnostic tools that are really going to help women in how to treat their, their symptoms and how, they're actually showing that they might be coming having a heart attack in the near future whatever it may be definitely also on the drug side uh, I believe that this was brought up uh, earlier as well but there are different drugs that again you can't just change we're not uh, because we're not little men you can't just take it from a kilogram perspective um, mm-hmm. there are specific drugs that's Literally impact a woman in a different way, regardless of if you're the same size as that 70 kilogram male or not. And I just be, like the little men. <laughs>
0: the Men is
1: me up every time we say that.
0: <laughs> I keep a straight face. Not, I can't even.
1: Exactly. Yeah, the, the visual of that is is quite amazing too. But my my question about that, and you know, not to be ignorant, but I think for the sort of layperson that is not actually in the women's healthcare field why is it important that women are tested differently and looked at differently? Like if, from the composition of our bodies, is it because of the hormonal factors? Is it, you know, why aren't we little men? <laughs> it's I guess what I'm trying to Let's ask, ask the it.
0: doctor in the room. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you know, basic biology, <laughs> XX versus XY The Y uh, Y chromosome is actually missing a leg equivalent of genetics, so we have an extra um, genetics there. But definitely the estrogen, progesterone, that puts us up for blood clots, Um, the monthly cycling up and down, up and down, moods, it exacerbates diabetes, um, seizure, anything. And so that's why one of the things we promote is hashtag periods optional. And so you, if you're bleeding every single month, that is so 2020, get with the times, get with 2023, you don't have to bleed every month. And using the IUD, the implant, the shot, the pill, the patch, the ring, if you can maintain a stable hormone, one, better for research, but two, better for life so that there isn't this up and down, up and down, like messing with you all the time. So women are not men. And the example that I didn't give that might help people is they've shown with certain um, sleeping drugs that when women took it, they Mm -hmm. had like hallucinations. And like, I do Mm -hmm. think it was a dose thing that women are not 70 kilos. All of medicine is based on 70 kilos. I come from pediatrics. We dose everything in milligrams per kilograms. And so it blows my mind that you have a 130 pound woman, you're giving her the same dose that you would give 160, 200 pound dude. And it's not the same. And if you took the dose one third, I bet you'd get a different result. So I do think part of it is just pure, you know, mass, pounds, Um, kilos, whatever you're doing. But the other part is absolutely hormonal. um, And um, I don't think we're that different. You know, levels
1: of fat in their, their, your percentage of fat in your body is supposed to be higher than men. And so, yes. How does that interact
3: with that? absolutely affects drugs that either are stored in the fat or, you know, metabolized held differently in the fat and particularly adolescents. It's upsetting for them because the young women or XX start putting on boobs and hips and then the XY start building muscle and then there's anorexia, eating disorders, etc. cetera. Yeah. So um, that just biologically, as you can see, as you said, the fat difference.
0: I think yeah. you, when digital health, the biggest, one of the biggest areas of promise is personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's so absurd that for most of medicine, we're still categorizing everybody as the standard white male. And I think a big example of this is the trash measure of BMI. BMI is so flawed. It, was, it has mm-hmm. very recent. It wasn't even developed by someone within the medical system. It was developed by a mathematician on a male European body as like the perfect body. And now we're applying it to everyone and labeling people with high BMI, obesity, you know, like without taking taking into account kind of their full health. And so what's happened is, you know, BMI, if you're tall, if you're body masses or your body fat is distributed differently, but you're perfectly healthy, you can appear to a physician as someone who is, and you are labeled as obese. Let's get into your
1: individual businesses, because you all are doing different things in, this, in different spaces. So I want to I wanna dive in. I want to start with Hallie. So what specific problem does your business address? And, and in this case, maybe it's natalist. Or some of the businesses that you're investing in, and what case studies or stats really turned you on mm-hmm. to this, and made you feel like this is something that cannot be ignored?
0: Yeah. Well, I'd actually love to talk about my current company, Cofertility, where I'm co founder and chair. And we realize that the best time to freeze your eggs is usually when you can least afford it. Um, and so we're out to make egg freezing more accessible. For me personally, it's one of my biggest regrets in life that I didn't freeze my eggs sooner. Um, I went through many years of IVF to have my miracle child, and I'm so grateful for that. But that experience has led me to now start two companies. <laughs> it was the reason I started Natalist, and that was the reason I helped start CoFertility. fertility So our, our KEEP program gives egg freezers access to exclusive discounts at clinics and with storage providers, which helps bring down the cost and also bringing in kind of the community aspect of it. We found a study that showed that women who undergo egg freezing are like unhappy that they're having to do it. They feel like their life isn't working out as planned. And we think that it should be a celebratory moment, an exciting, empowering step in your life. And so just bringing that community element and having women freeze their eggs in cohorts makes it a little less lonely. We also have a program um, we call SPLIT, and it allows qualified egg freezers um, to freeze their eggs for free. And have them stored for 10 years for free when they donate half to a family that couldn't otherwise conceive. In terms of stats, I would say the one that we just heard from uh I think it's it, I think it was ASRM or SART, one of the large groups within the reproductive health space, is that egg freezing cycles surged during COVID uh, and they were up 40. 40- 6% year over year in 2021. Um, so, you know, enormous growth, a lot of interest in egg freezing, yet cost is an enormous barrier. And at CoFertility we're trying to tackle the cost piece. Can you speak to how much it is for those who aren't aware? Because I
1: wasn't yeah. aware of how expensive it is. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was contemplating it. She's in her mid-30s and she is single and she just wanted it as an option. She's like, I would definitely do it,
0: but it's just too expensive. I know. It can be about $15,000 when you take into account medications. It's different for everyone because everyone needs a different um, level and a different combination of medications for ovarian stimulation based on your ovarian reserve. And then it also, it's funny, it it depends on where you live. And actually, if you live somewhere that has more clinics, like New York City, you actually Mm -hmm. find that the prices are more reasonable because the clinics are competing with each other. But if you're someone, unfortunately, who lives somewhere with only one clinic, in a lot of ways, those clinics can set their price. So it does vary across the country. And um, while some employers do offer egg freezing benefits... They tend to be really large, um, tech companies and it's really just a small percentage of the population that gets egg and covered by their employer. Huge problem. Love that you're, you're solving this.
1: And, um, I'm going to go to you, Agia, and I want to ask you the same question for Avia in terms of, Avia, I keep, okay. <laughs> I just want to call it Avia, um, but for obvious, I never
0: noticed how your name and
2: company are so similar until... I know, I always totally <laughs> keep saying <laughs> them. It's one of those like things where neither did we until we went to go tell people after we named it. <laughs> That's amazing. It's supposed to be like well, it avian sounded good themes. Your ears. We actually wanted Avia, but it's a shoe brand that has pretty good SEO. So we're like, we're not going to compete with that. But it's supposed to be like avian themed, sky's the limit for you to soar. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so Avia, we if I wanted to tell you my entire life story, I could, and it really does feel like everything I've done, both personally and professionally, has led me to starting this company, even though I didn't know uh, at the time. Avia itself, we are a daily ovarian hormone health app. Uh, We help people understand, based off of where they are in their cycle, how it impacts them personally, and then give them recommendations of what they can do accordingly, and also just like plan plan ahead of time. So we actually plan our board meetings based off of when I the best situation to prep. Um I do my workouts accordingly now. I wish I would have known earlier in life. And this is actually what happened uh, from a personal experience. I'm a science nerd. I took the MCAT, thought I was going to be an MD PhD. And when I went through some personal um health stuff, I started doing my own research, because I was like, I don't understand what's going on, why this is happening, what this means, and came across this whole ovarian hormone health cycle. And I was like, frustrated and now I almost laugh about it, but I would have planned when I took the SATs accordingly as captain of my basketball team, captain of my basketball captain of my basketball team, captain of my soccer team, would have had my teams train accordingly because your quality of muscle toning changes, your risk of injury changes depending on where you are in that month. Actually, the US women's national soccer team trains based off of their cycles. And so that was wow. Yeah. And so that was like a It was a personal experience that had me very frustrated, but it's when I met my now co-founders who had the same experiences where they were like, I didn't know this. One of my co-founders was losing her vision where she was having... What she didn't know was hormonal migraines, but she would lose her vision every two to three months. And only once working with a very specific doctor did she realize that's what it was. Otherwise, they were looking for brain damage, eye damage, different disorders. And nobody asked her, when in your cycle does this come? And so that was like very much anecdotal of what we went through and the things that we said, we don't want other people to ever go through these situations again and forget going through situations. We want people to be able to plan accordingly and really optimize how they're, whether it's working out, planning their board meetings, whatever it may be. So what we did um, in terms of when you talk about numbers, we learned from a 7,000 person study that. Most people, actually ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent of them, only think that their period and fertility and or their um, hormones impact their period and fertility. When in reality, it's your quality of sleep, quality of muscle tone, mm. energy levels, sex drive, skin, mental health, mood. The list goes on. And, and through Avia, uh, yeah, people have actually helped diagnose at their doctors as well.
1: Doctor Yen. Wanted to yeah. get the, you know, those case studies that inspired you to, to start Pandia and specifically what problems or, or solutions you're addressing.
3: So several motivators to start Pandia Health. Um, pan is every, dia is day. So we want to be with you every day. If that helps people remember how to spell it, and how to pronounce it, that's useful. And then it's also the Greek goddess of healing, light, full moon. So we're all about women's empowerment was giving a talk to a bunch of doctors. Why don't women take their birth control? And one of the top reasons was didn't have time to go to the pharmacy, didn't have it in their hand. And my friend and I were like, we can solve this. We will just ship you birth control until you tell us to stop. And then we ran ads, free birth control delivery. 60% of the people that responded didn't have a prescription. And it's like, don't you know you need a prescription in the United States to get birth control pills, patches and rings. And I'm a doctor, so I write prescriptions and thus Pandia Health was born. If you have a prescription and you have insurance, you pay us nothing and you get free delivery, set it and forget it. One of our mantras, no one runs out of birth control on our watch to the best of our ability. If your insurance is evil, that's a totally different thing. And then (laughs) also started this company for me so that I would never run out of birth control. Started this company for my daughters so that they don't have to worry about this. And if anyone else was providing care at the level we're providing, I'd step aside. But they're not. We are the only academic doctor-led company in this space. I realized what I was taught at UCSF and Stanford works great if you're a Caucasian female that wants to bleed every month. But if you're asian or black i spoke to my fellow asian and black doctors like oh yeah that doesn't work and i look back and i had to go through three different drugs until i found one that didn't give me side effects so using my mit ucsf stanford brain took all the birth control pills ranked them from most likely make you bleed least likely make you bleed most likely give you munchies least likely give you munchies most likely give you zits least likely to give you zits. And our doctors are trained on this algorithm to minimize side effects. And then we do a 10-week follow-up. You all good? You haven't zits? You haven't breakthrough bleeding? And then our doctors know what birth control to move you to. And with that, we have 82% retention in a year for newbies on birth control versus the standard 55% retention. And we also have amazing customer service at 4.9 out of five stars on Google reviews. Love that could have used that when I was younger, (laughs) for sure. And we're going to menopause. So that's
1: wonderful. I'm not quite there yet, but I I guess I'm within the age range where I could be. The other question I do have for you is, so it sounds like you have a 10-week follow-up. And like you said, you you had tested all these different birth controls and then had given it a sort of assessment um, based off a variety of factors. In terms of the individual that you're prescribing, do they come to you with a desire for a specific brand or do they take, is there some sort of assessment or quiz that they take initially to help understand which one's gonna be right for them and sort of what their birth control journey is gonna look like?
3: Yes, so from the safety side, we've taken the protocol that California approved for pharmacists to prescribe birth control and added a layer of doctor. And then given our knowledge, um, I'm an adolescent medicine specialist. So we make sure women are on are on enough estrogen to protect their bones so that when they're 50, 60 years old and they fall down some stairs, they don't break their hip. They don't break their wrist. So one you know, Pandia public service announcement for today, anybody on the birth control pill, check how many micrograms of estrogen. And if you're under 30, it should be at least 30 micrograms. If it is less than that, your doctor doesn't know adolescent medicine. Your doctor doesn't understand bone health.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I would have been that person that said I want minimum hormones possible because my experience was I went crazy on it. So um, you're definitely doing a service to all women out there. Um, I'm going to go to Hallie and Dr. Yen you've you've invested in such incredible women's health organizations, both of you. Are there any white spaces within women's health? And I know, Hal, you started to touch on this earlier that you feel haven't been fully explored or addressed from an investor's perspective.
0: Gosh, um, I get this question a lot. I think the last year Raquel published data on this was 2021. I don't think we've had it since. But then at that time, we found that companies specifically addressing women's health, made up 7% of all digital health funding. Given that women make up 50% of the population, I would say the entire space is underfunded and is a white space. <laughs> I think that there's not a place within women's health that is 100% fully serving women. I think there's a lot of really great companies that are really promising, um, but I wouldn't say that like there shouldn't be more because there absolutely shouldn't yeah. be.
1: Yeah, just because there's a very large total addressable market. What about yeah. you, Dr. Yen? What do you what do you think? Are there also like are there specific areas where you feel like, okay, there's been a lot of companies entering this space? There still needs to be more, obviously, but I haven't seen businesses entering XY space.
3: Yes. So I see a, a ton of companies entering menopause. And I'm concerned because it's the wild, wild west. And supplements are not FDA regulated, they aren't tested. Are there randomized clinical trials for whatever this person is trying to sell you? I believe in evidence-based, cutting edge medicine and science. And know that 30% of the time, if I give you placebo, which is water and sugar, it will work 30% of the time. But people are charging 100, $200. And menopause, I'm seeing pellets, if anyone is putting pellets under your skin, no, that is some crazy stuff. I don't even know how that's el- how that's pellets? legal. So people are doing testosterone pellets and women putting it under their skin and it's giving them vigor and libido. And we don't know the distribution of the testosterone. It varies per person. Once it's in your body, we can't take it out like that. If anybody's doing pellets, ladies, just say no and walk away. Um, But what could be useful that blows my mind is there's a menopause patch, but it's twice a week. And as an anal retentive scientist, OCD person, how do I break this into three and a half days exactly? Like, how ridiculous is that? We need a one-week patch, please, people. And then there is a vaginal ring for birth control that has both estrogen and progesterone, but there isn't the same... For menopause. So, you have to put a vaginal ring for estrogen and then you have to take a daily pill for progesterone. And the reason I think for this is because back in the day, like 80% of women would have a hysterectomy. They would be like, oh, you're done with babies? Let's take it all out. And the US still has 80%? It was huge. It was like the number one surgery second to circumcision. And they've now since stopped doing that because there are consequences to taking out your uterus and having a gap and everything else falls in and there's prolapse and there's side effects. But I was just on another talk that if you have BRCA, then you have an increase of cancer and the hormones on the uterus increases uterine cancer. So maybe better to take out the uterus so you don't have risk of uterine cancer. So there's just many things you need to weigh on that. But the reason why they have it separate is they assumed you didn't have a uterus. So then you didn't need the progesterone. The progesterone and any hormone therapy for menopause, et cetera, is to make sure the uterus doesn't get endometrial cancer. But if you don't have a uterus, then you don't need it. But like, why do I have to have a ring in my vagina and pills? Why can't the ring deliver both? And there's no implants. It'd be nice to have an implant. It'd be nice to have an IUD that did, you know, both of the situation. But so there's huge drugs that could happen in menopause, Um, that need to be out there. And then again, racial slash genetic differences. The cool thing is as more people get 23andMe, DNA, Ancestry.com, they can provide their genetics and we can be like, ah, oh, you have this SNP. This is the best birth control for you. You have this SNP. This is the best obesity treatment for you. This is the best menopause treatment for you. And that's what we're going to do at Pandia Health. If people have their DNA, you want to share it with us for the sake of science. We'll start running it with you know race and side effects and just seeing what What pill is best for you based on your genetics? Because my daughters are half Korean, half Taiwanese. And if they marry a black person or a Latino or a Caucasian, what will their kids need? You know, so genetics is absolutely the way to go in the future. And then dementia. I think there is a lot of research yet on menopause, hormone, estrogen, dementia. And we don't have all the data there, but it's leaning towards that estrogen before the age of 60 and perhaps continued after that will help decrease dementia because dementia is huge and really scary. Mm -hmm. And we, as those with uteri often get stuck with the caretaking.
1: I'm gonna go to Agya and Holly again, because I wanted to ask you all about generally, people coming in as entrepreneurs, as well as investors coming into the healthcare space, I think it's incredibly intimidating, right? There's a lot of regulations that you have to consider. There's so many factors. My question for you is, what has been your experience, and maybe I'll start with you, Agya, navigating the healthcare space, and how has that been different from your previous experiences? For, for those people that are maybe thinking about starting a women's healthcare business or um, feel like they have a great solution, but are very overwhelmed at the task of entering the space.
2: I feel like this could be a panel itself. <laughs> Just start there. <laughs> so I spent a number of years when I was in consulting, working across payer, provider, pharma, pharmacy, you name it. Um, mm-hmm. When I went to MIT for business school, that's where I I knew that what I wanted to do was rather than looking at what these players wanted. I wanted to look at what the end user wanted, because that's where I felt like a lot of these players were not paying attention to. Actually, one of them, uh, a very well-known pharma, they had a plan to do something. I can't share um, major details here, but they were going to make a billion dollars off of it in five years. And I was like, if we just look at it from this angle, with what this use, how these users actually interact with this they were able to then change it to $5 billion in five years. That's wow. huge. And so yeah. that's something that I know we're talking, the question is on how to navigate the healthcare system. I think that that part itself is just really important to recognize is what is your end goal with what you're trying to do? Um, are you trying to do something that's going to help the payers? is. Are you doing something that's going to help the providers? Are you doing something that's going to help a pharmacist? Or are you doing something that ultimately you want to help the end user? Because I think that there is still a disparity there. Um, I know, Hallie, you can probably speak to how your companies have been very much D2C companies themselves also. How what does that look like if you wanted to try to sell that through through the healthcare system? So a big part of it starts to become how to get the lay of the land. I actually did a whole mapping of the system a few years ago, which I'm happy to share at another time, where understanding who plays with who, who plays nice with who and who doesn't play nice with who <laughs> is important, but if you're looking to start a direct-to-consumer company, I definitely wouldn't let that be a barrier to you getting mm-hmm. it up and out because that's something that I will help you with. That's something that uh, your advisors, investors will help you with, but that's not something that you should be letting be a barrier to you getting out there to build something that's going to have a true impact on the end user themselves. Business model is a completely different story there though. So if you're, if you think that this is something that yes, it's going to impact the end user, but I don't know that the end user is going to pay for this that's where then you have to think about, all right, is this something that they expect the payers to pay for this? Is this something that they expect to come with when they go to the doctor? Um, and I know Dr. Yen can speak about that more from the um, insurance and from the doctor perspective, but those are things that you can figure out. And there are so many resources. Um, you don't have to have worked in healthcare before. In fact, many of my founder friends who are in women's health or in healthcare specifically have not worked in healthcare before. Mm-hmm. And if any hopefully that keeps you from getting bogged down by a lot of the details and being like, oh, I can't do this because this person doesn't do this. You will try to break barriers, really break the ceiling there to make things happen that you know should happen.
1: That's encouraging, though, that you feel like and that, you know, people that have gone into the space who don't necessarily come from the space and are able to navigate it because it does seem mildly impossible from the
2: outside. I, and I get that, but 100%, you can and you will. And I think that the biggest thing as an entrepreneur is to have grit, to know that what you're solving is worth solving and that you are having an impact. And if you have that, nothing will stand in your way. Not the 99 investors that are gonna say no, not the healthcare system, nothing. Yeah. And Hallie,
1: I wanna go to you too, because I wanted to ask from the investor side as well, you know, as investors want to get into the space, right? Clearly yeah. there needs to be more funding in this space as as we've all discussed. There's just not nearly enough going into women's health. So let's get more people in. Let's get a lot of women in. How do they think about doing diligence, right? Mm-hmm. With a, yeah. a healthcare company if they have no experience. And then once they are on the cap table, so they do invest, how can they add value yeah. to or or say to that company, hey, I can add value through this, even if they've no prior experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I do think as an investor, it's important to not invest out of your wheelhouse. I turn yeah. down deals all the time because I just don't have the I don't understand enough about the industry. And I don't think I can be helpful. And I don't think I can make a, a good bet. I actually looked, I've been diving into my data now that I've been investing for 10, 15 years. I've looked at the companies I've invested over time and the companies that have done the best are the ones in healthcare and in women's health. Um, When I try to dabble in other things, like it just hasn't worked out for me. So I do think that there's something to be said about investing in what you know. That being said, like everyone's a healthcare person. We have all interacted with the system in one way or the other. We all have bodies. So I do think that healthcare is a space where like, You know, you might not think you're a healthcare person, but you know what? You probably are. You've probably had an intense experience. Certainly if you're a mother, you've had an intense experience with the healthcare system. And if you want to deepen your understanding, there are a lot of ways to do that. I think there are a lot of resources out there. I would go about it the way you go about any curiosity you have. I would talk to people. I would listen to podcasts, like my podcast, The Heart of Healthcare, to plug it. I would read books. I would subscribe to Stat News. I would subscribe to Healthcare Brew. There are a ton of great resources out there to kind of get you comfortable with how the healthcare system works. And you don't have to understand the entire system. There are certainly areas within healthcare that I still, after working in this industry for a long time, really don't understand how they work. Like I really don't know much about clinical trials and how that works. And, um, but I know a lot about women's health, um, and how that works. So I think when you say healthcare, like pick a, a lane within healthcare that you're really passionate yeah. about and investing companies in those space. So maybe it's mental health, maybe it's women's health, whatever it is. And I think that's the way that you can become an expert, which is don't try to be an a, expert in every area in healthcare, mm-hmm. try to like be focused on something. And in terms of the last part of your question is like, how can you really, uh, help companies that you do invest in, uh, be patient. <laughs> That's like the biggest thing building in healthcare is really hard. You will never meet a healthcare founder that is not tired and beaten down and exhausted. It takes longer to scale. There's more regulatory hurdles. There's a longer time horizon to build customer trust, but it's also the number one area an opportunity to make a difference and improve the human experience. So Mm -hmm. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to be patient. So just be patient with the founders because these businesses don't look like other tech businesses, but they're even more rewarding. And I think you can have an even bigger impact on your investment.
2: The other thing I wanna add as a founder looking at investors too is that in our first institutional round, we actually brought together two co-leads one, depending on what your business is, it may or may not make sense, but one who was a digital health um, focused fund and one that was a consumer fund that didn't really dabble in digital health. But we wanted the two so that because we sit at the intersection of them. And even with our angel investors, we have our fairy godmother like Callie, we've got the toy and we've got doctors, we have different um, healthcare care specific angel investors. But then I also very specifically went out and found angel investors who are really good at brand, really good at engineering, really good at specific things that we were going to be up against in the next 18 months. But maybe they're not someone who's had the experience in healthcare, but that's not as necessary at that point.
1: Got it. And how did you go about looking for this, Agia? Because I think that's such a... And Hallie and Sophia, feel free to weigh in on this as well. I think all of our founders are always asking, where do we find valuable advisors or investors that are going to be on our cap table? Like, how did you go about that initial search?
2: That's also a whole other panel we can do. I just (laughs) didn't know recently. (laughs) Um, But the biggest thing there is being very intentional and being very personalized also. At least that's how I approach it, is I thought through, okay, these are the, I think I had a list of 12 things that I I was like, I want an expert in each of these areas before I close my round. And I want to make sure more than 50% of these people are, have ovaries themselves. And I want to make sure over 50% of these people have started a company themselves. And Mm. so I was very intentional about what I was looking for. And in each of those 12, I started reaching out. Look, some people I had relationships, the founder of what, for example, at the time, or CTO of what we had already been, you know, uh, speaking about a few other things. I was like, all right, I'm raising a round. Would you come in? And he was very excited to come in. Like that's a personal connection already versus there are some people where my either someone I knew I had to reach out very much warm intros. There were no cold outreaches. Um, Hallie, for example, I was introduced through what, who the person who was leading the round. So different um, ways to connect with people like that. Definitely some of them longer term versus some of them is a little mm-hmm. bit more immediate turnarounds.
0: But but I, I love think the intentionality. Yeah. us, right? Yep. Yeah, so don't be afraid to reach out to men too. I, we hear horror stories and I've heard so many horror stories about male investors not getting it, but there are oh, investors yeah. who really, really, so really, really, really
2: want to get into the space. Our two, our two co-leads, at like, our seed round, were both yeah. male investors. And, yes. and, you, and it's risky to reach out because you could have a terrible experience, but maybe
0: find um, male investors who've actually been vocal about wanting to invest in women's health. We and, need their help. We I, need all the help we yeah. can get. So yeah. I think to your point,
1: Hallie, earlier, because you talked about the fact, you know, invest in something you know, and I've found the same thing as an investor, too, where the places that I know or the people that I know, right? I might not yes. know their industry, but I know that these yeah. people are incredible yeah. founders.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those have been the ones that have worked, but... The, the question there then is, it's going to lead you to a lot of, of men because the healthcare system is also dominated by, by men already. So you're not going to find quite as, as few women with that domain expertise. But that being said, what I would love to understand is how a, a founder of a women's healthcare company might think about pitching to yeah. men and positioning yeah. it. Yeah. Maybe, Agia, you look like you might want to have something to say about this. <laughs>
2: I mean, I have so many things to say about fundraising, um, but I will keep this very short, but I'll, I'll keep it to three things. One is, regardless of if they're male or female, I think that the best attitude to go into it with is you truly have to date 99 duds before you find your stud. Like, whether they're male <laughs> or female, just expect to talk to so many people, especially if you're a first-time founder, if you're, maybe if you're, you've started multiple companies, it's very different. If it's, um, you are not very well connected, all of these things. I think that mindset just helps because then you don't feel as defeated when you hear your first 10 no's and when you hear your first 15 no's. So I think that that's one. Um, number two there also is I used an analogy just now earlier where I was like, oh, we're in the first inning. I speak to sports (laughs) so much. I lean into it hard where I'm like, oh, I I saw that you played tennis in high school or in college. What if your tennis career could have been improved by knowing where you are in your cycle and like leaning into that? And then yeah. the third is that there's been so much, so much, um, study on, on, on bias when it comes to female founders versus male founders. So for, um, female founders, they'll ask you more questions of like what you've done versus for male founders. They'll ask you what you're going to do. I take the, what have you done questions and turn them into this is what we're going to do. They won't yeah. even know that you did that, but yeah. there are just like different things like that, that you should go. Anyways, I yeah. can keep going, but I'm going to stop there. Yeah.
0: I think those are great pieces of advice. Someone told me early in my career that you should uh, ask for money when you want advice and ask for advice when you want money. Uh, And I think the sentiment is that you can and should build these relationships early, but don't ask for money too early. Because if you're fundraising before you're really ready and someone passes, they could have that like preconceived notion down the line when you are actually ready and in a better position. Um, So I think being careful about when to fundraise and you're going to, you'll waste a lot of time if you try to fundraise prematurely. So getting your ducks in a row, whatever that means, like prototype, some sort of MVP, or maybe that's some sort of traction, a team, whatever that is, you have to kind of find the right time to go out where you're going to increase your chances of success and maybe talk to, you know, a hundred (laughs) and maybe three of them will be interested, whatever that ratio is, you want it to be as high as possible. 99 duds before your stud. Love it.
2: And you <laughs> have one of the right stages too, just to build on what Holly's saying is yeah. that I will, I'm very candid about this. When we were raising our like angel round, I got distracted by the shiny object of seed stage companies or seed stage firms reaching out to us. And I was like, oh, they're interested in us. Maybe they want to invest. At that time, nobody had told me that they do a lot of information gathering. And so I got hopeful, I wasted time. Mm -hmm. And so when we raised our next round, I basically cut out anyone who doesn't write certain number, certain amount of checks, don't invest at a certain stage. And if they reached out to me, I'd say, hey, you know, I'm happy to circle back with you in six months or something like that. Yeah.
0: I, this is a very controversial piece of advice, but I'm going to give it. Try to talk to partners when you can. Like I, you know, I associates, especially women of color who are associates and principals and and working so hard. Like Mm -hmm. I don't want to write them off, but at the same time, the partners are making the decisions and you really want, if you can, you're going to have a better chance of getting the deal. If you have that meeting directly with the partner. And so relationships with the person who's writing the check is going to save you the most time. And so when you're getting like, if you have angel investors or, or, industry leaders who are making those introductions, like ask who, who are the people you're going to introduce me to and, you know, see where they are in in the firm and really like spend most of the time with the people who can actually write the checks. And i will say just what I guess said earlier, like there are, there are a lot of VCs, especially associates who are really just information gathering. They're out there Mm. trying to understand the market to compare you to your competitors and it'll totally waste your time. So try to avoid that if you can.
1: So we have just a couple minutes left, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in um, with two final questions. One question I'm going to direct to you, Dr. Yen, because you talked about, again, money towards specific women's health issues. So can you enlighten us on that process and then share with any of the folks that are watching how they can be helpful in putting more money towards women's health issues?
3: Yes, so Portfolio is a great option. Astia, I forgot to mention, is another yeah. great option. If you want to donate, Springboard Enterprise is a nonprofit that has an accelerator for women founded, women led companies. And then uh, I mentioned Coralis, which is another nonprofit tax deduction. And then Impact Assets. So I've created Sophia Yen's Women Fund at Impact Assets. And I've invested in five different companies that do social good in this world. And four out of five are run by women. Um, One of them is eco underwear. The other is lubricant for menopausal women. Another one is a cap um, that you wear during chemo to prevent hair loss. And then I did a wind company as well. And I've also done some other investments as well. And then
1: my final question for all of you, what's one of the best pieces of advice? I'm sure you've gotten many great pieces of advice. One of the best pieces of advice you've received as a founder that you want to share with all the founders listening in today.
0: Get a therapist. Take care grind. of Take care of yourself. I actually yeah. just did a podcast on this topic on mental health for founders. Founders are to, it. to self-report a mental health condition. I've lost a founder to die by suicide um, wow. years ago, and. All I can say is like you, your life and your mental well-being is so much more important than this company. And you have to actively, no matter how hard things are at work, you have to actively set aside time, money, energy to take care of yourself. Beautiful.
3: Mine is general, um, hashtag stop sucking it up with respect to women's health. Um, the number one cause of miss school and work is bad, evil periods. And women are like, oh, it's just life, uh-uh. If you aren't missing school and work, please see a doctor. And then menopause, a lot of physicians, well, it's just menopause, suck it up, is what it is to be a woman, uh-uh. If you are having any symptoms of menopause, if you are having any symptoms of endometriosis, fibroids, whatever, do not suck it up. Find a doctor that cares.
2: Mine is on surrounding. It kind of builds on Hallie's, but surround yourself with founders. It is easily the, even if you have co-founders, it is easily one of the most trying, loneliest, so many different adjectives I won't list right now, experiences and being yesterday, for example, I got together with two founders and we were able to just, we did a hackathon on all the problems we're going through both personnel, company, things (laughs) like that, where those are the support systems that you need in order to be like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one because a lot of times you think, oh, I'm the only one going through this, just like you do in women's health. Um, So I think having that support system of people at your stage and maybe one stage ahead is very, very, very powerful.
1: I feel like we ended on that because we seated you to say that, Agya, because that <laughs> is the entire reason for what we do is everything that you all mentioned. It is so important to prioritize yourself as a founder. And it's really hard to do. You have to be super intentional. Um, you have to protect your health and you have to serve yourself to people who understand what you're going through. And the reality is that even if you have a wonderful group of investors and cap table, um, no one replaces having a founder at your side because they're going to be going through it at the same time. So join 10th House. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, thank you all so much. Um, you. Your wisdom is just ever flowing and I feel like I have a million more questions for you, but I think this was extraordinarily helpful in giving us a window into how everyone can can help to provide solutions to these yeah. problems and invest in it and get behind what you're doing.
2: Thank you so much for having All us. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks
1: everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Halle Teco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. No That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.